Praise the Lord. Well, if you're new to our church this morning, uh, you are welcome. And perhaps you are asking yourself that question, all this talk about resurrection. What is the resurrection? And, And do we even know for sure that the resurrection happened? And what does it mean for me? Well, God willing, we're going to take a look at some scriptures today and explain uh, what the resurrection is all about. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and so when we gather on a Sunday morning to to hear what God wants to say, we look to His written Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, it says, For I delivered to you first of all... That which I also received, this is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church at Corinth. He said, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, or Peter, and then by the Twelve. And after that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, or they have they've passed on. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Down to verse 14. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Today I want to I share quick, uh, three quick truths from this scripture about the resurrection. Three quick truths. First, that resurrection is proof. Second, that resurrection is fact. And third, that resurrection is an offer. First, the resurrection is proof. Paul said that Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead, and after he rose from the dead, he was seen by Peter, the disciples, by over 500 people, and by himself. And this fact that he was seen, risen from the dead, proves that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he would do. And what is that? That he would substitute his own life, his perfect, priceless, sinless life as payment to satisfy God's wrath toward humanity's sin. That's what the life of Jesus Christ was all about. In John chapter 2, Jesus said to his disciples, destroy this temple, speaking about his own body, and in three days I will raise it up. And then it says, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the words which Jesus said said. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he would do. 
In Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew 28, certain women came to the tomb. And it says when they got there, an angel had rolled the stone away. Now ask yourself that question. Why did the angel roll the stone away? Was it to let Jesus out? Was Jesus stuck in there as though he needed an angel to come and rescue him and release him from the tomb? No. Jesus had already risen from the dead. Jesus left the tomb long before the angel got there. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in, to let the world in, and to see that the tomb is empty, and to prove that Jesus is who he said he is, and that he did what he said he would do. In fact, that's why the angel said to Mary, he is not here, he is risen, and then the angel invited her, come and see the place where the Lord lays. Hallelujah. Now some people may ask, how can you say that, that Christianity is the, the only true religion, in fact, the only way to God, which is what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And some people say, well, what about other religions? Aren't these other religions, as well as Christianity, just different paths leading up the same mountain? And it's a fair question because if you study religion, you'll see that that's all that it is. Buddhism or Islam or, or Catholicism. It's just man's futile efforts trying to climb, trying to pull himself up and work his way to God. If you study all of the religions of the world, you'll see that they have this one thing in common, that God is, is up here, this is what religion teaches, and that man is down here, and there's a distance, there's a, a separation between man and God, and man knows that he must do something about his own condition to gain some kind of acceptance with God, whether it be religious rituals and, and rules or good works. And look at all the religions of the world. You'll see it. Islam has its five pillars. Buddhism has the eightfold path. Uh, Hinduism has uh, idol worship and shrines. And, and Catholicism has the, the catechism. It's all about man trying to better himself and improve his condition and earn his way back to God. But listen, Christianity, true Biblical Christianity is not God up on a mountain telling man how he must pull himself up and climb up and somehow reach God. Biblical Christianity is not God up on a mountain. Biblical Christianity is the story of God leaving that mountain and coming down to us and living among us and reaching out to us. That's the difference between the faith in the Bible that's centered on Jesus and all the other religions of the world. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Hallelujah. Did you know that there are 4,200 different religions in the world, but only one has a God who gave his son. Only one has a cross on which the Father nailed his son. And only one has an empty tomb. Hallelujah. 4,200 religions in the world and only one has an empty tomb. And understand, this empty tomb is a fact of history, which is the second truth that I want to show us out of this text. The resurrection is a fact. Everybody say it's a fact. The empty tomb is a fact of history. Now notice, Paul, when writing this letter and talking about the resurrection, he doesn't try to prove that the tomb of Jesus was empty. He doesn't present evidence. He doesn't make that, that argument to support it. He simply states it as a fact. And there's a reason for that. Because that fact was uncontested in his day. Understand that the empty tomb of Jesus was a widely accepted, well-known fact to everyone living in that region at that time. Understand, Jesus was a celebrity in his day. He healed sick people. He fed thousands of people miraculously. He raised people from the dead. His name, his life, he was known by everyone throughout Judea. And because Jesus was so well known, his death, especially being that he was crucified, was an event that everyone was talking about. If they had newspapers, it would have been the headline. If there was CNN, if there was Fox News, they'd have been talking about that for months on end. It's all you would have been hearing about for weeks and weeks and weeks. Now here's the thing. The Jews hated Jesus for the very fact that he claimed to be the Son of God. They considered that to be blasphemy. They hated that Jesus claimed to be their long-awaited Messiah who would rise from the dead. They despised Jesus. In fact, they actually hired a squad of Roman soldiers to guard the tomb because they feared that the disciples, his followers, would come and steal the body. But the, the disciples, they didn't come and steal the body. They were too afraid to do anything like that. In fact, the Bible says they were hiding in an upper room somewhere. And he didn't need his disciples to come and steal his body because Jesus was quite capable of raising himself from the dead. Isn't that an awesome statement? Jesus was capable of raising himself from the dead. Let me read the account to you from Matthew chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. Listen, just so you know, if you're ever in a graveyard and there's an earthquake and an angel, heads up, something's about to happen, okay? The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And the guards shook 
for fear of him and became like dead men. They passed out. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is, come on, say it with me. He is not here, for he is risen. Hallelujah. And the angel says, Come and see for yourself the place where the Lord lay. The tomb was empty. The grave was empty. Jesus was no longer in the tomb. And let me just say this, that this fact of the empty tomb is a documented, verified, historical fact. If the tomb was not empty, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all the Jews those Pharisees who hated Jesus, all they had to do was just march people over to that tomb, go down into that tomb, and show them the dead body of Jesus. But they couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They didn't do it. Why? Because the body of Jesus was no longer there. Because Christ had risen from the dead. In fact, in verse 12 of this chapter, it says that those Pharisees actually bribed the Roman soldiers to lie about the empty tomb and to tell people that the disciples came and stole away the body. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact of history. And it is a fact that those original disciples took to their dying day. In fact, each one of them, except for John, who was a prisoner on Patmos, every one of them died a horrible, violent, gruesome martyr's death. Why? Because they refused to deny that they had encountered the risen, glorified Christ after he was crucified and laid in the tomb. Some of those disciples, because they would not recant their faith, they were burned alive, hanged on stakes, flayed open, fed to beasts, crucified, even crucified upside down because they refused to deny the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and they personally encountered him and had a relationship with him and were preaching the gospel of life to the world. And this very morning, today, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, two point. 38 million people around the world, one-third of the world's population today, people on every continent, in almost every nation, are singing and shouting and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a historical fact that is known around the world. And I'm here today. And you're here today. Why? Because we've met him. We've encountered him. We've experienced his healing power. We've experienced his life-giving power. We've encountered his saving power. Hallelujah. And today, we can gather together and say, he lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Come on, give the Lord a praise. He's alive. 
His tomb is empty. Which brings us to the last point that I want to make about these words of Paul. The resurrection is proof that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he would do. The resurrection is a fact. It is a a historical, verified, documented fact. And also, the resurrection, because it's proof and because it's a fact, it's an offer. The resurrection presents an offer to you and me. In fact, in verse 3 of our text, Paul says these four powerful words, Christ died for our sins. Five, sorry. Christ died for our sins. What does that mean, that Christ died for our sins? Well, let me explain it to you by showing you one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and it says, For he... God the Father made him, Jesus the Son, sin. For God made him sin, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made him sin. What does it mean that he made Jesus to be sin? It means that he, God made Jesus to be sin in the sense that he treated Jesus as if Jesus had committed every sin that had ever been committed by every person who had ever lived. Though in fact Jesus had committed none of them. Hanging on the cross, Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, Hanging on the cross, he was a spotless lamb. He was never, not even for a second, a sinner. He was holy. He was God the Son. But God the Father is treating him as though he had lived my life. As though he had lived your life. God punished Jesus for my sin. Jesus took the blame for my sin. Every commandment of God that I had broken and deserved to be punished for, Jesus took that wrath in my place. I wonder how many of you ever had a brother or a sister growing up? Anybody here? You ever have a growing up a brother? So when I was growing up, I had a brother. And, uh, and how many of you can remember when you got into trouble, that your brother or your sister loved you so much, you know, they didn't want to see you get punished, so I don't know what you did, maybe you broke a lamp or uh, uh, maybe you lit the woods on fire behind the house that caused uh, two different fire departments to come to the, whatever, just something random, whatever it was, and your brother loved you so much, he said, I don't want to get, I don't want you to get punished, so mom, dad, I did it, I lit the fire, and anybody have a brother like that? Yeah, me neither. It would have been nice though, right? It would have been really nice to have a brother who loved us, loved me, you know, that. But listen, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He is that friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
God the Father treated him as if he lived my life. He took my blame. He took my guilt. He took my punishment. God punished Jesus for my sin and turns around now and now treats me as if I lived his life. Hallelujah. It's what the Bible calls a vicarious substitutionary atonement. That's deep theological talk for a simple word, the gospel. It's what the Bible calls the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. That's what the Bible is all about. And this is what makes it different from every other religion in the world. The gospel is good news. It's what we get because of the resurrection. We get complete forgiveness from our sin. And then we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God looks at the cross, you know what he sees? He sees you. He sees Christ carrying your sin. And when he looks at you, you know what he sees? He sees Christ's righteousness on you like a robe. Hallelujah. This is the offer. This is the offer of the resurrection. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, if there's one thing you need to understand in this life, one thing, it's not how to properly invest your money. It's not how to be a good husband, wife, or parent. Those are important, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing for you to understand in this life is that Christ died for your sins on the cross and He rose from the dead to prove it. It's the most important truth that you can get in this life. And that now... If you're in Christ, you can stand in the blessings of God. That now, if you're in Christ, you can be right with God. Hallelujah. You don't need the five pillars of Islam. You don't need the eightfold path of Buddhism. You don't need all of the catechisms and all the priests and saints to pray for you. You don't, you don't need any of that. All you need is what Jesus did on the cross. Hallelujah. And listen, there is nothing better in this life than knowing you are right with God. Come on, how many know what I'm talking about? There's nothing better in this life than knowing that no matter what you face, no matter what you're going through, you are right with God and that God is with you as you go through it. It doesn't mean you won't have problems. It doesn't mean that you won't hurt, won't have hurt. But it does mean that when you go through those problems and when you have those hurts, that he gives you the grace that you need. He gives you the peace that passes understanding. He gives you the joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. He gives you the assurance that he hears your prayer. Hallelujah. And that he's the God who can take what the devil meant for evil and turn it around for good. That he's the God, hallelujah, that causes all things to work together for the good for those who are right with him and are called according to his purpose. There's no better thought in this world than knowing that you are right with God. But it doesn't stop there, not just limited to his blessings in this life. It's being right with God in the next life. It's about being ready to face God when that appointment comes. What appointment? Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed 
unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Romans 14.12 says that each one of us will give account of ourselves to God. If you're a student of history, you'll recognize the name Daniel Webster. Daniel Webster was a lawyer, a congressman in the early 19th century. He served in Congress and as Secretary of State. He had a brilliant legal scholarly mind. He actually spoke 26 languages. You can imagine, I can barely speak English, and this guy spoke 26 languages. They asked Daniel Webster, what is the most important thought you've ever had? And he said this, the most important thought that ever occupied my mind is that of my individual responsibility to God. That one day, I will give an account of my life to God. Why would this be the most important thought that such a great man, a great mind could think? Get this. Listen to this as we draw to a close. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners. Each one of us. And that's bad news because God is a holy God. He's a perfect and just God, and He cannot allow sin into His presence. Right? And that's why the Bible warns us of a place called hell. Hell is a real place, and it's a place where a just judge must punish those who broke His laws. The good news is that this just, perfect, and holy God is also a loving God. Hallelujah. That He loves us and He does not want to punish us for our sin. So there's a bit of a conflict in the nature of God. On the one hand, He's just and perfect and must punish sin. On the other hand, He loves us and doesn't want to punish sin. And He solved this conflict in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is all about. On the cross, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. What we deserve to be punished for, God the Father appropriated it to Jesus and punished Jesus. When those nails were driven into his hands and his feet and that crown of thorns on his head and the spear thrust into his side, Jesus wasn't being punished for his sin. He was perfect. The Bible says that the Lord, God the Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was being punished for me and for you. And then he died. And then he was buried in the tomb. And then on the third day, the Bible says, hallelujah, he rose from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the bold proclamation of heaven that what Jesus said he would do, he did. He carried our sins and he defeated the penalty of eternal judgment on us and rose up from the dead. God the Father accepted the offering of His life for our sin. And now, He offers that gift to you and me. This is what the message of the Bible is all about. It's about the gift of forgiveness of sins. The gift of eternal life that God offers to each of us. Let me invite the worship team to join me up here, please. The gift of God 
is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Here's the thing with a gift. It does you no good unless you accept it. Amen? I mean, I could go out and buy the nicest gift and wrap it up and I could hand it to you and you could look at that gift and say, wow, that's a wonderful gift. Thank you for that. And then you could back away, put your hands in your pockets and never accept the gift. The gift that I got for you does you no good. You've got to reach out. You've got to take that gift. You've got to open it up, unbox it. You've got to take it out, put it on and say, thank you for this gift. I receive it. I'm going to wear it. It is mine. This morning, someone here today needs to accept the gift that Jesus is offering today. The gift of forgiveness of sins. The gift of eternal life. Let's bow our heads together. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord, for the cross. That on that cross, Jesus took our sins, bore our punishment on our behalf. And we thank you for the resurrection, which proves to us that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he would do. That it's a fact of history that cannot be denied. And that now there's an offer of salvation for all of us. I pray, Lord, if there's any here that have never received that gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, that just speak to our hearts right now in Jesus' name. Now, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, we're going to dismiss in just a moment. If you're here today and you have never asked Jesus to come into your life, to be Lord of your life, forgiving your sins and giving you eternal life. If you've never done that and today you want to say yes to Jesus, I want to lead you in a prayer right where you're sitting. I want to lead you in a prayer. I just need to know that you want that done. So slip up your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I need to ask Jesus Christ to come into my life. Just slip your hand up real quick and say, yeah, that's me. A couple hands over here. Anyone else to say, yeah, that's me. I need Jesus to come into my life. I need Jesus. Bless your heart. Let's all stand together. Let's all stand together. Father, thank you for those that raised their hands this morning. God, you know their hearts. You know who they are. Father, we pray that as we lead in this prayer right now, God, that your presence, that your spirit, Lord, will touch those that raise their hands and they'll make this gift of salvation a reality. So if you raised your hand and you know who you are, and God bless you, I want to lead you in a prayer just right where you're, you're standing there. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I'm going to ask you just to repeat this prayer with me. In fact, everybody, let's just repeat this prayer to encourage those that are praying it for the first time. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, I admit that I'm a sinner. But I believe Jesus Christ, God the Son, died on the cross for me. And rose from the dead on the third day. And, rose from the dead. and now, Jesus, now, Jesus, I ask you, I ask you to, come into my life, to come into my life, to be Lord of my life. Lord of my life. I, renounce my sin, I renounce my sin, and I renounce my own good works. And I trust in the cross. Jesus, forgive my sins. Jesus, forgive cleanse, my soul. cleanse my soul. I receive eternal life. I receive eternal in life. Jesus' name. Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Let's just thank God for his gift of eternal life. Thank you, Lord. We trust you, God. We trust you, Lord.